0: guys welcome to the podcast around the world in 50 minutes this is our second go around at it, but today we'll be talking about the film charlie wilson's war and by doing so we're going to be analyzing did the u.s involvement in the afghan war during the 1980s lead to the conflict in the middle east that we currently find ourselves in and alongside me i'm joined by three of my fellow podcastees so my name is kyle caps I go to Scott County High School. Uh, we're all GSP scholars here.
1: And I'm just going to pass it around. I'm Dave hey. Hart. Uh, I go to Crafts Academy at State.
2: I'm Brianna Bull. I go to Louisville Mail High School.
3: I'm Otavio Menezes. I go to Oldham County High School.
0: OK, and to give a little background about the the film we've been watching this past week, is. Alongside our international relations uh, class, we are watching a series of films involving foreign policy and international relations. This week, as I said, was Charlie Wilson's War, and this film centered on uh, the lead protagonist, uh, Charlie Wilson, and his attempts to support the Mujahideen during the Afghan war in the 1980s. And this film centered around him and his exploits. and sort of go right into it, Uh, I think one of the leading questions that we need to sort of engage here is the Cold War sort of framed the Afghan conflict and as the U.S. versus Soviets with the Afghans in the middle. So do you think this was a really crucial part to the Afghan conflict? Do you guys consider it to be separate from the Cold War or just a proxy war of that larger conflict? Well,
1: I think it was certainly a proxy war of sorts. Uh, We see the reasons for the Soviets wanting to enter Afghanistan being access to oil-rich territories, ease of access, uh, that is. And so naturally the US doesn't like that, um, based on the ideas of containment of communism. And so they, following the policy of containment, followed through with supporting a group of quote-unquote rebels uh, to oppose a communist government um, and Soviet foreign forces, Um, and in doing so, uh, the U.S. never engaged in a hot war with the Soviets, however they did uh, contribute um, in such a way that was in line with the practices of the Cold War. So I think, in a lot of ways, it was a proxy
3: war. I feel like the United States was in Afghanistan at that time, mainly for the oil and the resources. However, they just used communism <coughs> and as an excuse to get like their foot in the door in that region for uh, all these resources.
2: I feel like, like what really makes it different from the Cold War, obviously, is because we stepped into it, us being the United States, like contributed to the war in such a vital way.
0: Okay, so another big aspect sort of branching off that is, do you think the US would have gotten involved in this conflict had the Cold War not been the larger frame to it? Like, I think we all come to agreeance that, regardless of to what capacity the US was involved versus the Soviets during this war, it was still very much a conflict against the Soviets. So. In a world without the Cold War as the frame, do you guys still think that Charlie Wilson and his campaign to help the Afghanistan people, the the people of Afghanistan, do you think that would have still been plausible and the U.S. still would have gotten involved in the Middle East had the Cold War, the Soviets, not
1: been the triggering mechanism? We talked about a similar scenario in class the other day. When it comes down to it, uh, it really does depend on who's in charge at the time and what foreign policy we're rolling under. I have a feeling that, and this is just me uh, theorizing, that Charlie Wilson, even though he did play a part in what was going on, he was not the most important pawn uh, at play. You know, We have the United States President and certainly the Vice President, uh, George H.W. Bush, who we all are familiar with uh, in his later exploits in Kuwait. And so I think that if we'd not gone in to stop the Soviets because they're inherently communist, we may have gone in uh, to protect our rights to oil security in the region, sort of like we did in the first Persian Gulf War. You know, we went into Kuwait not because um, it was Saddam Hussein that had invaded uh, Kuwait, but rather it was somebody that had invaded Kuwait and was threatening our ability to receive oil. So I don't know if it was necessarily um just the soviets that caused us um to contribute to this dark war in afghanistan although obviously the fact that communists does play a big part i don't know if it's the sole reason tabby do you have
3: any opinions um well i think uh you wouldn't have communism as like a scapegoat to view into that region so uh, I feel like the United States would find another reason to get oil over there Not but I don't know to the extent of <clears throat> how play it played out it, it'll probably be different but maybe less extreme now um,
2: I feel like it really highlighted the fact that in the movie um, Charlie Wilson seeing all the refugees really um, sparked the United States to try and push for more um, funding to get into the war,
0: basically. See, that's really interesting because we've got sort of different perspectives on what was the lead motivating factor for the U.S. involvement. To where we have, we have political, to where we were trying to combat the Soviets and communism. We also have economic, to where we had a lot of vital ties in the region that we were wanting to protect. And we also have sort of social, to where we're, we have this humanitarian, like philanthropic, uh, passion in the United States. And when we see that, see these refugee camps and all these different like. These atrocities be occurring in Afghanistan we had the innate like desire to help them but also I think a really good point that Zeb brought up was was Charlie Wilson really the key to this story he's clearly our protagonist in the story the whole along with the title the, the entire story revolves around him and his exploits to gather resources and help to contribute to this conflict but is Charlie Wilson the one responsible for the US involvement in Afghanistan and the US support of the Mujahideen and these rebels and what are you guys' perceptions on that does Charlie Wilson really make the difference in this war
2: I think he made the difference the like physical like difference but um I think he's like the symbol for the difference because he's the one that kind of pushed for the funding and he's the one that actually like made it happen quote unquote but um I don't think it's just him. I think he had a lot of backing, a lot of different motivation, um, multiple factors that contributed to like the success of Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree. You know, it's difficult to make an objective argument. Well, I guess no argument's objective, but it's uh, difficult to make an objective uh, analysis of this phenomenon. The phenomenon being, is Charlie Wilson the major player? Because you know in a lot of ways we only we're basing our entire thesis off of a film um that we've seen examples where the film has exaggerated certain things um i do think that uh charlie wilson did serve as sort of the instigator or um, the catalyst for uh, beginning to get things done you know as with all things you have to have a catalyst to start a major reaction and so uh, i think that Charlie Wilson could have served in that capacity. Um, as far as long-term uh, determinants of policy um, and and how the U.S. was going to act in Afghanistan once uh, we determined that we were going to act, I don't know that that was up to Charlie Wilson. I think Charlie Wilson just helped us determine we were going to act. I think the Uh, the terms of how we were going to act was left up to the higher-ups people that um, um, more so on a day-to-day basis deal with foreign policy and stuff like that and i think
0: just to propose a question to the group like do we think it would be a more interesting or compelling or even more factually accurate story if instead of focusing the entire narrative upon charlie wilson we had the perspective of joanne as sort of like a dual protagonist where She's the one who initially convinces Charlie, like, this is a worthwhile pursuit. This is something that you should really look into because it's, it's a serious conflict that requires your attention. Or do we think that this should be, like, a much broader tale, which talks about how a lot of different players came in, um, American players and otherwise, came into this conflict to be the deciding factor, to be the catalyst in their own right to making this conflict a uh, U.S. concern and inevitably leading to the withdrawal of the Soviets? So, do you think we should have more protagonists or a more well-rounded group of people who are the key figures in this uh, in this story, other than Charlie?
3: I feel like a more well-rounded group of people give credit to people who deserve it, because like Charlie Wilson, of course, didn't act alone; he had support from other people, and those people deserve some credit. So,
2: yeah, like Joanne, she did play a major part in like really giving him the reality check he needed, because like she he was really like paying attention to the things she was telling him about like the conflict and she kept like pushing it onto him but um, there were like he did have a lot of people that were giving him the initiative and if he didn't have those people then he wouldn't have made those strides as he did
1: see I tend to disagree um, I think for the sake of a good story um, you have to pick one um, focused protagonist, and by choosing solely Charlie Wilson as that protagonist, uh, the movie was genuinely able to blow him up into a larger-than-life figure, something that would make for an entertaining story. Um, And, you know, the the amount of vulgarity that was in the the movie, the amount of questionable actions that uh, different characters in the movie took, obviously was unnecessary if you're just trying to tell the story of what happened but if you want to tell a an intriguing story that captures your audience's attention then you have to do it like that you have to have a main protagonist um that not everybody can necessarily relate to but everybody can appreciate it, get a kick out of and i think that's as far as this story is concerned the purpose of this hollywood film um it was absolutely perfect how it was set up okay and i think you i think you make a really
0: good point to where we have to think this is a film, first of all, before it's an accurate representation of the historical conflict and these historical individuals. But I think another aspect that we can sort of discuss is what is it about Charlie that makes him the perfect protagonist for this? Is it the fact that he's, he's sort of not your average hero in a lot of aspects? Like how you were talking about, he's kind of morally deplorable, he's, he gets involved in a lot of sexual and drug-related usage and he's a very interesting guy to say the least but is that is the fact that he's such an interesting character in the con in the context of this conflict does that really make him the ideal protagonist for this is the fact that he's a really unique politician does he make him a more compelling character for audiences to latch on to Oh, i think so i think certainly
1: um you know the whole idea If you ever listen to producers discuss what they value in an actor or actress, it's uniqueness, something that sets that person apart from either 99% of the populace. And even though uh, Tom Hanks is not necessarily the most unique looking individual, and certainly Charlie Wilson was nothing uh, intriguing to look at by embroiling his, his story of accomplishments with all of these different deeds, um, and a very interesting persona. Uh, it made for a, a great character and I think the same can be said for any character. I mean take Clint Eastwood's character in Gran Torino, this crusty old guy who's been through a lot. People can't necessarily directly relate to everything um, that these characters uh, do or have experienced. However, there's just enough of a, a relatableness uh that people enjoy watching it and there's enough differences and intriguing differences that people um love the characters and so i think that goes for all films and i think that's what you know helps to produce a good film is is a main protagonist who is different in unique intriguing ways but not so different um that it flies in the face of what we experience as americans yeah
3: i agree with that completely because uh would people rather watch uh, some old guy in a suit go on a diplomatic mission to Pakistan and talk to President Zia or would they rather watch a uh, congressman from Texas wearing a cowboy hat go with his southern charm to Pakistan and convince Zia to go help him out in his pursuits in yeah. Afghanistan
2: kind of gives it like a reachable quality to him like he's, he's average enough but he's not like too average he kinda has like that spark to it. Like he a part in the movie he was saying, like people someone asked if he had the authority to do what he was trying to do and he's like, no, I don't have I don't have any authority, but I mean he's gonna do it anyways because it's what he thinks is right. So I like okay. that part.
0: And I have a question to sort of just tie up this this train of thought. What does it exactly say about our perception of Afghanistan as a conflict, and more importantly, of our perception of the Cold War, that when we retell the story of Af- of the Afghan war and our involvement of it, we choose to sort of like commemorate this one individual man. I mean, as we've all said, he's a catalyst, and he certainly did not act alone in his pursuits. This was a massive endeavor of his. But why do, what does it really say about us as a country and us as a society when we choose to herald him as sort of like... The figure we perceive to be worth putting on the title of this film. What does it say about us when the man who gets arrested for DUI and it was, has sex or has like cocaine allegations placed against him? What does it say about us when he's the key figure in determining like the Afghanistan
1: conflict? I just question: Do we have much of a choice? Um, are there other options for us? Do we know of any other people? It was such a black war. Something that the U.S. government kept from the people—that um, it's kind of hard to contribute it to many other people because we simply do not know of any other people. I mean, certainly any any central um, intelligence agency and figures—we're not going to know their stories. I mean, we're just not, um, and that goes for a lot of the bureau, bureaucratic agencies. But then again, I think you know someone else who could be credited, whether it's maybe the president, maybe other members of say an Appropriations Committee, uh, the Appropriations Committee that uh, Charlie Wilson himself was on. But at the same time, uh, in the end it comes down to who was the catalyst for the whole thing, and that was Charlie Wilson, who was the most intriguing, uh, almost quintessentially American figure involved in the whole process, and once again that's Charlie Wilson. And so I think he literally just checks all the boxes for the for a character that makes for an interesting story, and that's I think is as simple uh, as an answer as as I can give as to why he ends up being the one that we all remember.
2: In Americans, like we like to put the light on someone, we like to have a hero to look at, and just we like to think of ourselves as heroes just because we fix a problem or whatever we like to think, and like we are, um, we're not gonna we're going to turn a blind eye to the things that might not be the best morally and ethically but just because it makes our country
3: look better. I just think as Americans we're looking for like a romanticized story that we can like tell our children about and Charlie Wilson is like the perfect character for that. And I agree
0: with that because I kind of I kind of think Charlie Wilson is the perfect embodiment of of an American perception of this conflict because he's not perfect. He's certainly a, a very colorful character in terms of what his interests lie beyond politics. And I think everything from sort of his cultural sen- like his lack of cultural sensitivity in some in some instances to his sheer bravado, like they all illustrate someone that Americans as a whole can relate to. We even we can compare it can he can be our personification of our country as a whole because he embodies so many American traits. He's He's unorthodox but pragmatic. He's an effective leader, but he's also has a fondness for partying. He's a cool guy. Like he is a lot of things that Americans as a whole can relate to. Like our country is not perfect, but we still have our best interest in mind and the interest of the world as well. Because regardless of how deplorable he might be, when he gets into that refugee camp in the film, he he sees all that's wrong with the world. He sees True issues that he can combat as a as a diplomat and as a politician. He knows that, regardless of what he got into this job for and what his constituents might want, this is something pressing that matters and this is something that deserves his attention. And I think, uh, going along with that, we need to start talking about U.S. intervention into this conflict as a whole. Because as the movie stresses really early on, at the time, only five million dollars was devoted to try to trying to combat communism in Afghanistan. And that's a really small sum in terms of trying to fight this really large conflict against this industrial nation of uh, the Soviet Union. So the question that I have for you guys was, was the U.S. interested in this conflict in combating the Soviets if it wasn't for Charlie Wilson? Was there still that interest there? And if so, why didn't we devote more resources to this conflict?
1: yeah I think the interest was there. Um, if you look at you know geopolitically speaking, the Soviet Union was kind of hemmed in they couldn't spread east and they couldn't spread west because in the east there's the uh, Pacific Ocean to the west there's Western Europe uh, which was solidly blue with NATO forces. so the only direction they could really go is south and I think there's no question that for the past fifty years we've been Screwed around in Korea, Vietnam, um, China. You know, we had been combating uh, the spread of communism to the south for the longest time because, and, and you know, I think that our foreign policy recognized that that's the only direction that communism could spread, and it does come to a, as a surprise to me that we did not um, throw more monetary resources behind. A preventative plan to keep for keeping the Soviets out of Afghanistan, um, because it was part of the course for them. They had been uh, occupying all the stands, whether it's Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, which you know Turkmenistan, whatever you please. Um, it only made sense that they would be going for Afghanistan next, because Afghanistan was the road to oil. You know, you it, it, it provides the um, easiest route. Uh, to the Persian Gulf and the largest uh, reservoir of oil on the face of the earth. so uh, it would make sense that they would go for Afghanistan. So I you know it is, it is strange that we only have five million dollars initially allocated uh, to fighting the spread of communism within Afghanistan. However, um, it does make sense that we would be placing uh, our monies elsewhere. Uh, in a time when we were focusing on much larger programs to try and destroy the Soviet Union, uh, such as Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, and you know these large these large schemes, um, when you when you compare our goals in Afghanistan to the overall goal of the United States, um, Afghanistan seems very small um, in comparison. So, uh, in line with that, the amount of money allocated would be quite small, initially at least.
0: Okay. Do you guys have anything further to add on that sort of topic?
2: Um, yeah, I pretty much just agree with that because um, the big picture didn't really rely just on Afghanistan until we realized that it was becoming more and more of a problem.
0: So. Okay. <clears throat> and a question I think is really interesting sort of stemming off that as well. At this point in the Cold War, do you believe just from what this movie gives off, that the U.S. thought a conclusion, a favorable conclusion to the Cold War was inevitable, or did they see it as sort of a possibility for the near future? Because coming up the, the heels of the Vietnam conflict and the Korean conflict, both of those either ended in a stalemate or a strategic withdrawal at best for the United States. And that was sort of like one of the first conflicts that the Americans did not win a decisive victory in. So at this point, did the US believe they could win the Cold War? Like, Is that why they only were willing to sacrifice $5 million to allocate to these peoples? Because you can't keep spending this much money combating an enemy that just won't won't falter.
1: You know, I don't know. I tend to want to say that it was inevitable that the Soviet Union would fall the system Obviously we all recognize that the system of governance they adopted um, in practice is broken to begin with. Um, and so the short answer is yes, regardless of how much money we throw at it, uh, small amount, large amount, the Soviet Union will have eventually fallen. The longer answer is based on our actions throughout the Cold War, it is my opinion that the intent of the U.S. was not to win a war against the Soviet Union outright in a hot conflict. That's why we never declared war on any of these countries that we went in to try and occupy, such as Korea and Vietnam. We just sent in uh, police forces. It was all police action. And so um, I think our goal was not to win an outright battle, but rather wear them down. You know, it was understood we, if we outspend the Soviets, if we outmaneuver the Soviets, if we can... Literally occupy all the land around their land so that they cannot spread more. Um, then they will eventually lose because uh, the heartbeat of such an empire is the ability to constantly be conquering new lands. They have it's kind of like a, it's kind of like this is going to be an odd analogy, but it's kind of like a great white shark. It always has to be moving forward or it will drown. It constantly has to be progressing, um, otherwise it will falter, and so. When we began to throw the, the brakes on the Soviets being able to move so easily, um, I think the end was in sight. Um, and so, that, you know, that's the longer answer. The longer answer being, the end game was not to beat the Soviets um, at a hot war because, simply put, we couldn't. We didn't have the resources. To the Soviet Union is the greatest. Uh, institution for developing weapons the world has ever seen. They were just good at it. They knew what they were doing. We couldn't keep up with that necessarily. Um, and obviously their, their manpower, they had they had the largest territory uh, in the world with the most resources in the world and a great deal of manpower. And so the goal was to um, force them to use that in such at such a rate that it could not be sustained. And I think we did that successfully and sooner or later it would have caused the Soviet Union to collapse.
2: I agree with that because um, we didn't necessarily like have as much confidence as we usually would have for for the purpose of a war. But um, I feel like we knew that eventually um, their form of government and their military would basically self destruct. We just contained it, so that was yeah. Like I've said, the end was in sight, but we just didn't know exactly how.
3: I like that shark analogy you used, and sometimes I see it in the United States too. It's like we always need to be moving, or in our case, fighting something. Because like, ever since I remember, we've always been fighting a war, and right now it's the war on terror. But before it's been the war on Afghanistan, Vietnam War, and you name it. We've always been in a war, and I wonder if we like change our policies one day. Go in isolation, maybe again. I wonder if we'll actually survive, or if life will be much different.
1: I think that's interesting, and I would like to go on a tangent here briefly, and then if we get too far off, just bring us back in. You know, at any point, would it ever be healthy for the United States to stop fighting wars? Because war legitimizes any people, the ability to make conflict, and do as you please with an armed force really is what creates uh, your presence as a global power and so if we were to revert to more of an isolationist strategy and give up our big stick for a quill and a piece of paper um, would the United States be in a position that it is now as a world leader or would it just go back to those 13 colonies who are on the other side of the globe um, and aren't part of worldly affairs, or is that even possible with such things as the internet? What do you all think? Um,
0: Personally, I think the position of being a world power dictates that you have military power. And the easiest way to exert that and to showcase that is through conflict. You can assemble all of your soldiers in nice, neat little rows and send out television footage to showcase to the world your military strength, but it never really gives the impression of how dedicated and how how much how capable your your military truly is and only through <clears throat> large scale conflicts can that really resonate to the nations of the world the capacity for the united states to make war and <clears throat> i think there will definitely come a time because no superpower has ever lasted throughout the ages all superpowers inevitably fall and whether it be like this tremendous like breakdown of every little institution in in part of that country or whether this just be a gradual decline is sort of um, best showcase to the uh, United Kingdom like all superpowers can't last and I think there will certainly come a time where the United States will lose its superpower status and by doing so our requirements for conflict and our requirements to be this global hub of information and technology and economics, like that will be downplayed. And I think that will overall be a positive thing, because so many people take the United States as this really special example of what it means to be a global power, however, we're very contradictory. I mean, just to look at our foreign policy, we're continually trying to make new investments and globalize the world economy, but we're also trying to act in a more unilateral capacity as a military and political power. Like Because of our superpower status, we're put in a lot of contradictory situations where one administration may, may make one decision that impacts the turn of United States foreign policy, but another administration might flip the ship and turn in a completely different direction. So I think when you're dealing with a democracy like this, you're going to have infringements on what it means to be a democracy when you're a world power just because there's so many, there's so many requirements placed on you. So in all fairness, I earnestly hope there will be a time where the United States will not be required to go into so many conflicts just to prove our power because it has such a negative impact upon our identity as a nation and
3: as a people. Sometimes I wonder like what's the point of having all this power, like why can't we just live our lives normally? There are plenty of people around the world who live in like regular countries and they're perfectly
1: fine. Well, what's normal? What's a regular country? For every individual, for every group of people, regular and normal differ drastically. For the Afghanis, it's a 14th century mud hut filled society um, with mass illiteracy rates. Um, But if they can find peace within themselves, like so be it.
2: I think America will just want to settle for normal. I think we are normal in a lot of aspects, but I think what our thing is is that we're always trying to beat someone more. Like we're always trying to fight someone. We're always trying to stay on top.
1: We desperately want to hold on to the idea of American exceptionalism. Yeah,
2: and we it'd be very hard for us to, like maintain an isolationist um, policy because of our world power, and um, I think it could be beneficial. To be isolationist, but um, it would also maybe not work.
1: I think it's interesting. One thing that we were looking at was a study done on the presence of the United States military globally. I can count on two hands the number of countries the United States does not have some form of military personnel mm-hmm. stationed in. And I'm not talking uh, embassy security details or consulate security details. I'm talking about stationed uh, Army, Marines, uh, Air Force, Navy guys um, who are there uh, as part of the United States military and not a security detachment. So I think it is hard for us to foresee a future where the United States draws those guys back to the United States. We have. Uh, so many people deployed globally that it is simply unforeseeable for any of us back home to really ever see a world without the united states um extending its reach literally every country in the world but i think along that same lines um,
0: during the height of the british empire especially during the late 19th and early 20th century the uk had it was the empire where the sun never set i mean regardless of whether it be the subcontinent of India, all the way to Canada, you had this vast extent of UK and Commonwealth troops all stationed across the globe. And their power and their influence was unimaginable. I mean, they carved out a large portion of Africa and the Caribbean. And their presence was unfathomable to us now. And even then, the UK has gradually withdrawn and withdrawn its presence militarily, politically, socially to the point to where yes there is a commonwealth that exists outside of the UK but that's more of a loose confederacy of these different nations with similar like linguistic and historical backgrounds more so than it's this very interconnected alliance along lines of like the EU or the or United Nations like I think it's very plausible that something very similar could happen to the United States to where our desire to back away from the limelight and our, our capacity not to keep up with other rising superstars in the global community will dictate that we do something very similar to where our influence will just
1: gradually gradually descend. So I guess my question then uh, for you because I think that's an interesting point is with the British empire it wasn't a cakewalk all the time at different times throughout history there were major world powers that that worked against the British empire whether it be the French the Spanish the Germans Um, at any given time, those nations also occupied a great deal of the world. Uh, Maybe not as much as the British Empire. However, the colonial wars that went on um, certainly uh, cannot um, go without being recognized. But at this point in our history, we have defeated the Soviet Union. We were the victors in the Cold War. We have no one to stand up against us. Nobody will stand up against us. Um, And right now, the only enemy that the United States recognizes directly, uh, and I'm obviously Iran, North Korea, these um, these these governments that are inherently against American values are enemies. and I'm talking evil. Yeah, I'm talking like terrorist organizations, non-government uh, affiliated uh, pockets of violence across the world. That's our only enemy, and so. Unlike a British where there were large um, forces playing against their every move, the only forces we have uh, playing against our every move are loosely affiliated um, terror units. Is that something that, unless we do something that literally turns the world against us, is that something that will inhibit the United States from ever being willing or needing to decrease its presence globally? I think you make a very good point
0: because the 21st century is ushered in a completely new age in terms of global politics. I mean, this is something that's no one could have foresaw, foreseen. To after the Cold War, you prior to that you had the threat of mutually assured destruction. Like everyone in the world had this immediate threat of nuclear annihilation always coming at the doorstep. But at the turn of the Cold War, that major conflict was completely over. There was no new combatant that could equal the size and scope of the Soviet Union, and the United States was left to topple authoritarian regimes for a large period of time, and it was only through reactionary conflict, only due to 9-11 and sort of these terrorist attacks that happened in the 90s and early 2000s, the United States found an enemy to clash against. But I think one thing that often gets lost in our conflict with terror is the fact that beyond the scope of terrorism a lot of countries a lot of developing countries are making huge strides in terms of development i mean you have the progression of china and india eh, with both population economic and like institutional reforms that are making them ever growing powers in the global community these are countries that during the course of the cold war were pretty inactive with china taking more of an isolationist standpoint in terms of communism and India being a part of like the third wave versus so this like non-aligned movement, and because of that, the these these countries have not seen the ramifications of a cold war or like even the larger consequences of global terrorism because they haven't made quite as many enemies as the United States has in its pursuit of democracy and um, like global superstardom. And I think in the course of that, I think the small terrorist actions that you're referring to that that only occur randomly and are done by small organizations, I think those could slowly degrade the United States. And I I think it's very likely that sometimes the most devastating sort of like fights are those where they chip away at you slowly. And I think considering the fact that we're fighting terrorism, we're not fighting a set organization or a set country, I think terrorism can always exist. It can always exist in the minds of its adherents and its believers. And because of that, it can be an omnipresent threat for a very, very long time. And that can chip away at us far enough, I believe, where countries such as China or India or any other developing country that can sort of exert this growth, they could supersede us in terms of development economic capability. So I think it's very possible that small little organizations can take a heavy toll on the United States in the future and cause us to withdraw as a major superpower. Uh, just because like
2: it's dangerous because like we are so focused on just terrorism that um, we're kind of turning a blind eye to all the countries that are developing and if we do something that makes them turn against us we're already worn down by what we're already focused on. So I feel like that is true that um, we think we we think we can beat this thing like so easily even though we've been at war on terror for a while now i guess but we think well if that's our only enemy then we're fine but which is true it's our only direct enemy but if we don't be careful then who knows like what's gonna happen
3: yeah i don't think we'll ever get out of the war with terror cause it's pretty much impossible to kill an idea and. It's solely based on that idea. So uh, if another nation or state comes up and develops and rivals the United States, I feel like there's gonna be too many things for us to juggle and then
1: we'll have to step down, I guess. I just don't see in the foreseeable future any nation that's going to be able to do that. Soviet Union union, the Russian Federation has done Um, The kind of of weapons technologies that they are strutting at this point are 1980s level technologies. They have not had the need to progress past that. They don't have the funds to progress past that. That's why the Russian Federation is a second world country. China, although it has the largest population in the world, they are rocking 1960s level uh, weaponry for the most part. And yes, they will show off their newest and most improved weaponry because same North Korea does, same thing Iran does, but we all know the true uh, uh, substance of their military and as far as economically is concerned, China has seen one of the greatest drawbacks in economic growth in history. Um, one third of their economy is based on on construction industry, the ability to build, and that is why. Uh, China has grown so rapidly is for the past two decades they've been able to build and build and build and build but now they don't need to build anymore and so one-third of their economy which was literally construction workers, construction equipment, construction corporations, they have, they have no work because nobody's building anything. So that's going to play a major role in hindering uh, China's ability to progress. Um, and as far as India is concerned, India uh, currently is our ally. Um, and and one of our and one of the greatest threats to China in that part of the world because they are our ally, um, and I think that if we keep them our ally, it does not play as much of a major role in being a threat to the United States as any other country. Um, so for those reasons, among others, I do think that for you know the next 50 years, the United States is pretty. Pretty well secure in its its world superpower status, um, and I think the fact that we outspend the next ten uh, countries in the world when it comes uh, to defense also speaks to our commitment to maintaining that position. Um, so that's, that's really all I have. Okay. To say about that. And I really appreciate your opinion because you
0: make some very compelling points. And one of the last topics that I want to discuss really quick with you guys is. Let's discuss sort of the regional conflicts and rivalries that are tied into this conflict. Because, as we've all pointed out, Charlie Wilson certainly did not do this alone. And he traveled to both Pakistan and to Israel to garner support for his campaign. So, something that I'm curious to hear from you guys is, how did other nations play into into Charlie Wilson's war? Like, were they the real key determining factor? Like, he was obviously the catalyst, but without their support, Would the United States have been able to successfully uh, aid and benefit the Mujahideen in the conflict with the Soviet Union?
2: I don't think the United States wanted to do it by themselves. They wanted to know that they had people backing them up because they wanted to know if they were right. So they went to Pakistan and the president and his um, committee kind of were talking to Charlie Wilson about how the funds were not sufficient at all. And... That the refugee camps were getting out of hand and it was severely affecting wrecking havoc in Pakistan and like worse than it has ever had ever been. So that's kind of what like pushed him to um, really make a change in the situation.
1: I think that the United States physically could not do it on their own. Um the movie did a good job of explaining the major emphasis that was placed on gathering Soviet weapons to provide to the Mujahideen. Um, Obviously the United States does not have the largest of stockpile of Soviet-made weapons in the world because we are the United States. We don't need Soviet weapons. We have the largest capacity for arms manufacturing in the world. And so the obvious answer is hand them, you know, Ot 3 Springfield bolt-action rifles and old M. one Garands and stuff that we no longer need. Similar to how we did with South Korea, however, we understood that because this was much more of a shadow war than Vietnam uh, or Korea, rather, ever could be, um, we needed weaponry that would not immediately um, lead the Soviet Union straight to America's doorstep and be like, hey, you're providing our enemies with weapons, don't do that. That would have made for a sticky situation for everybody. And so, for the United States to gather those weapons, they had to align themselves with other countries that did have stockpiles of Soviet weapons. They also had to have a way to get those weapons to uh, the Afghanis, and it only makes sense that um, you go through Pakistan to do that. You know, uh, Kyle, you mentioned the Khyber Pass earlier. I would argue that the United States is responsible um, for creating uh, the Khyber Pass arms industry, one of the largest black arms industries in the world. They literally make assault rifles in caves. Um, And to this day, we are fighting wars against these weapons um, that that was started as an industry um, in part due to British colonialism, but uh, certainly was helped along by the United States' need to get weapons from um, supporting nations into Afghanistan. So I think without the support of other nations, the United States could not have completed uh, its goal of, of stopping the Soviet Union in their tracks in Afghanistan. Octavio, do you have any thoughts?
3: Uh, yeah, I completely agree because like, we need to rely on others for uh, resources that the United States didn't have. So, of course, uh, we look to other countries for that help.
0: Okay. And yeah. one last question I would, I would sort of like to ask for us to end on is let's go back to our thesis here. Did U.S. involvement in the Afghan war lead to our current conflict in the Middle East? Because with the article that I read about, uh, you were sort of discussing this earlier, Isid, about what you had learned about, I would focused on, my article focused upon the blowback from the Afghan war and how that conflict and our stabilization of that region through the collapse of the Soviet Union's endpoints there as well as the collapse of the Afghan's government there, that. Became one of the decisive factors in the growth of like global terrorist organizations centered in that area because it became a hotbed for global militant Islamists to gather in this region and to sort of cater and become a larger, more cohesive whole. So the question that I'm really, I'm really interested in what you guys have to say is: Is this is the Afghan war responsible for global terrorism
1: as we see it today? So, if the, the short answer is eh, sort of a yes and a no. Um, It's such a complicated issue um, because there's so many facets to what causes this radicalization uh, of predominantly Islamic cells um, to the point where they want to destroy all of those who uh, do not think like them. So I think that what people in the Middle East have seen is an America Willing to assert its dominance to achieve its goals, uh, regardless of what the people in that area may think. Uh, And so, um, in short, I think the United States, not directly, has has caused the war on terror. I think it was inevitable. Um, But um, I don't think the United States has has done anything to necessarily help themselves in the eyes of these individuals who wish to do it harm.
2: I definitely think there was a connection, but um, the war on terror could have happened in multiple different ways. It didn't necessarily have to start with just the Afghan war. But it definitely, there is a connection that is obvious.
0: Okay, closing thoughts or topic?
3: I feel like to an extent it does, because the United States obviously helped uh, the Afghanistan people, but uh, we didn't help them help educate them, help them with their infrastructure as much as we should have. So uh, they're ignorant now and they don't know that the United States actually actually had helped them back then. So uh, if we had done things differently after the war, then maybe it would be less extreme.
0: Okay. To give my final thoughts as well. I think the blowback from this conflict had may had major ramifications for the development of global terrorism as a whole and what well, would soon to be our war on terrorism I think that's undeniable to a certain extent, but I also think there's a lot of other factors that shaped this like we can't just attribute this one conflict to being the key factor in the development of global terrorism because that's just unrealistic centuries of Oppression in the Middle East and an ever-evolving global landscape have led to this conflict. I mean, everything from the the splintering of the Middle East after the fall of the Ottoman Empire by the British and the French, all the way up to the development of an Israeli state and the 1979 Iranian Revolution. All of these factors have led to this development of a global terrorist um, community. And it'd be faulty of us to try to attribute just this one conflict to being the key decisive factor. I mean, Charlie Wilson's war was an important war, but it was not the centennial conflict that has led to this major issue. But anyway, guys, it's been a really fun discussion here. And this has been Around the World in 50 Minutes. And stay tuned for our next episode next week detailing a new movie. So thank you all for watching. See ya. Thank you.